You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 380, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Brian Mariani. Making his comeback from episode 343, Aaron Kahn is a certified financial planner at Wealth Management Strategies Incorporated, a fully independent Pittsburgh-based registered investment advisor where he oversees all financial planning for clients of the firm. He is a good friend of mine, and because he did such a great job in episode 343 in covering finance for developers, we have invited him back to discuss a tangential topic, equity for developers. Welcome back to the show, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. It's so great to be back. Yeah, this is great. You can imagine from my desk, you know, talking to engineers who receive offers, equity is a typically offered. And there's so many questions that I've received over the 15 years running Mirror. So I'm really excited to meet you here, Aaron, and kind of hopefully enlighten our listeners a little bit with uh, some of your knowledge. This is great. Oh, likewise. I think equity is the best kept secret that you know everybody knows about in tech. And so I think shedding some light on the details is going to be really exciting. Terrific. All right. Well, we're going to kick it off with a uh, easy one for you. Uh, we'd love to get your outlook on the economy and how things are shaping up. So I actually feel pretty optimistic about it. 2020 was a little bit hairy. You know, we had what, two of the worst trading days since the Great Depression and three of the best. And Brittany and I were having this conversation a couple of weeks ago. And it's just so crazy that all of that volatility resulted in a pretty extraordinary year. I think the economy has figured out how to operate in a COVID world. And I attribute that almost exclusively to the fact that we're globalized and the fact that technology has been the life support for our global economy. So I feel good about it. There's a lot to be worried about. There's a lot to be uneasy about, but Generally, I feel optimistic. Excellent. Yeah, as do I and a lot of folks I talk to. I would be curious uh, how you feel that the current labor shortages are affecting the economy. So that's such an interesting question. And, you know, I feel like it's a very specific one. You know, labor shortages in dining and tourism are having a much different impact than labor shortages in tech or medicine, for example. I feel like technology and, and medicine are in a position to almost subvert the labor shortages. There are levers in place to get around the shortages and increase the capacity of the existing workforce. Whereas, you know, in tourism and and restaurants, for example, you can only carry so many trays or help so many people to their rooms. That's really scary. So I'm curious to see what's going to come of that and how in America specifically, the stimulus checks are going to continue and, and you know, really impact the desire for people to get back into the workforce. Because obviously it's a risk versus reward dynamic where the workplace and the pay stands right now for a lot of people, that's just not worth it. That makes complete sense and a really smart way to look at it, especially the whole risk reward mentality. Now to dive into why we brought you on today, a growing number of startups and big tech companies offer equity, stocks, options, and offers as part of software engineering compensation. However, I've noticed that a lot of engineers do not understand what this means, and they're completely focused on base comp, and they don't really consider equity. Why should you care about equity as you are joining a new company? Really, because equity is ownership. You are getting a material benefit from the company that is over and above whatever they choose to pay you. That really throws us down a rabbit's hole of what type of equity are you getting? What is the benefit itself? How is it structured? What are the tax consequences going to be? And is it actually going to materialize to any genuine benefit? Do you want to take a step back and make sure that our listeners are understanding all the terms that you're discussing? 
And so, Erin, almost picture yourself into a game show seat where I am going to put you in the hot seat. And I really want to define some terms. So let's start off simple. What is vesting? So vesting is a schedule that companies use to make sure that they're not giving you anything without getting anything in return. So a vesting schedule is typically four to five years, and you get an equal percentage of the equity over that time. So if it's a five-year vesting schedule, then every year you own an additional 20% of the equity that you've received. What's a cliff then? A cliff is a more abrupt version of a vesting schedule. So it may still be a five-year vesting schedule, but after that five-year period, you own 100% of the equity. Up until that five-year period, though, you own nothing. Well, this one sounds like a roller derby term, but what's a clawback? (laughs) Why don't you tell me first? So a clawback is essentially a provision that may be in your contract that says you may have to pay back the money that has been granted to you to the company that's already been received. More often than not, it's punitive. So for example, if you were to violate a non-compete or an intellectual property provision, there may be some language in the document that says you have to pay back all of the equity you've been granted from your hiring date up to the point that you committed this violation. More often than not, though, we only see it in punitive circumstances. All right. Well, listeners, don't do that. Um, (laughs) Aaron, what is a strike price then? So a strike price is a price that's actually independent of the actual market value of the stock itself. So this applies to options. So you have the strike price that, like I said earlier, may be $4 a share, but the market value may be $6 a share. So you have this privilege of purchasing the stock at that strike price. When you look at the strike price, you have to consider one of two scenarios. Either it's in the money or it's out of the money. A strike price is considered to be out of the money if the market value of the stock is lower than the strike price. It's, you know, there's no economic benefit to purchasing at the strike price. Conversely, it's in the money if the market value is over and above whatever the strike price is, where there's some spread between what you'd actually pay for it and what it's actually valued. Okay. Last question of the definition round. Let's consider this the lightning round. What is an equity refresher? So an equity refresher is a really interesting tool that companies employ to make sure that employees are still being incentivized after their, the initial stock grant. So when you get hired, you're going to receive some initial stock bonus or basically a, a pool of stock that's included in your compensation. The refresher is applied typically annually you know, at reviews to make sure that the proportion of your cash compensation is in line with the proportion of your equity compensation so that you can continue to receive this equity and continue to get shares of the company. We see this as a really great tool for retaining talent and it differentiates companies from the competition because there's this expectation that there's going to be an ongoing receipt of equity. Well, thank you for all that. Gosh, we'll we'll take you out of the hot seat now and and, uh, and ask some sort of Real life sort of situations that, you know, as a uh, recruiter, I run into as I'm talking to engineers, one of which, of course, is, you know, they'll get their job offer, they'll get their salary piece, they'll get the equity component of the offer. You know, there's not a lot of detail typically around that. For example, they might say in the offer letter that you can receive 8,000 shares just to throw it a round number. But there's a lot more that needs to be known. So I'd be curious if you could sort of enlighten our listeners a bit. What type of equity information should a developer expect to receive? You know, things like 
how many outstanding shares exist, what percentage of ownership it represents, stuff like that. It would be just very helpful to hear you know, what they should be asking. So all that information can be found on the statement of shareholder equity. The developers want to go in almost looking at a company like they're going to acquire it because effectively you are. You know, if a portion of your compensation is going to be an equity, then a portion of your compensation is taking a significant risk. So you want to really pull back the curtain and know how the watch is made. Once you're at that point of getting ready to sign the offer and you've signed a non-disclosure agreement, it's not unreasonable to ask for all of the financial statements. Even for a few years back, if it's a, a relatively seasoned company, you know, the balance sheet is going to tell you what the company's assets and liabilities are, what they owe and what they own. And this can be very telling. You don't want to buy into a company that is up to its eyeballs in debt with very little assets to show. Similarly, the cash flow statement is going to tell where money is actually coming in and where money is going. And you know this is going to be telling of just how the company is spending their money and, and using their resources, especially if you're receiving the option to purchase stocks or the, the stock rather than incentive stock options. You know, you're going to be making an investment in the company using your own cash. So you want to make sure that it's a healthy organization. The income statement is going to be really telling about just how successful the company is in the market. But like I said, most importantly, you're going to want to look at the statement of shareholder equity because this is really going to pull back the curtain and tell you how many shareholders there are, how many shares are outstanding, and really give the developer a great concept of what the value of their shares are going to be. The shares themselves are completely meaningless. You look at Bitcoin and you know you could have one Bitcoin worth tens of thousands of dollars, or you could have a million shares of a penny stock that's worth virtually nothing. So being able to assign a true value to your number of shares is critically important. You also want to look for a statement called an 83B election. And this has become pretty standard. Uh, and what it does is it gives the, the developer the opportunity to actually pay tax on kind of at the lowest price, at the price where it's granted. It's a bit of a gamble, but if you're going in expecting for the share to go up in value, so let's say you're at Facebook or you're at Google, you're expecting that the share price is going to go up over your tenure at the company, then you know, you're going to want to pay tax as soon as you receive the shares rather than once they vest. And that's what the 83B election allows you to do. As long as you have the cash to actually make the payment, and you genuinely believe that the value is going to go up, it can be a really beneficial thing for you. And finally, a developer is going to want to flip through the shareholder agreement. This is required by the SEC. It's, you know, it's not something that you're not going to receive, but it's a lot of times it's something that just gets kind of pushed by the wayside because it is a very complicated, very involved document. But this outlines all the provisions of ownership. And it's something that you would absolutely want to pass along to a CPA or to your attorney to review and, and really digest for you if the equity grant is that significant. Great. Good stuff. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring that is designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues. All this without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance issues. These include N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing that the Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. 
Scout has also launched its new error monitoring feature add-on for Ruby applications. Now you can connect your error reporting and application monitoring data on one platform. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend and try their error monitoring and APM free for 14 days, no credit card needed. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. Another thing I see are signing bonuses, you know, just cash signing bonuses up front that sometimes can be awarded together with equity, especially if the equity vesting is more back heavy. Is that a good or a bad sign? So from a tax standpoint, it's generally a good thing because this can help you to control your taxable income in a year when it may be disproportionately high as a result of that bonus. If it also consists of incentive stock options, then you're only going to be bound by your vesting schedule. And there's no expectation that you're going to have to you know, shell out money to actually exercise your options in the future. I truly feel that it's a good thing more than a bad thing. The downside may just be the accessibility of the money. If you're going into a job and your personal financial plan includes access to the full bonus, you know, maybe you're putting a down payment on a house in a new area since you moved for the job, that may be a little bit of a, a challenge. You know, obviously you have the vesting schedule to contend with, as well as just the volatility and the liquidity of the stock. You know, depending upon the size of the company and the secondary market, the community that exists to actually purchase the shares if you wanted to sell them, that can make it really difficult. So in general, I would say that it's mostly a good thing, but it's such a subjective circumstance as well. You know, it really depends so much on the company and the developer's circumstances. Sure. Great. All right. What terms in an equity grant would raise a red flag for you? So the first one would be unreasonable clawbacks. And, you know, like I had mentioned, you know, clawbacks are typically punitive and more often than not completely evaporate. But if they're tied to actions that aren't egregious and you know the, a reasonable person wouldn't look at those and say like, yeah, you should be punished for doing that. Then I'd be a little bit concerned about it. Clawbacks tied to performance or the success of an output. I think that would be a big concern, but more so than clawbacks, the biggest red flag is really just the company itself. Whenever I have a client who is looking at a new company in the tech sector and, and equity is a big part of the compensation, we take a deep dive into the health of the company. We look through all the statements and we look at this as if he or she is making an, an acquisition, you know, almost in the seat of a venture capitalist. So, you know, if you're getting a major equity grant from a company that's generally unhealthy, that's the biggest risk that I see. You're going into this expecting to grow your wealth and grow your net worth, but the company may have other plans and they may know that the health is not what they're marketing whenever they bring you on. And then finally, the last red flag I see is just the majority of, of your compensation in equity or equity being thrown around frivolously. We've talked about how you know equity is volatile. Cash is stable. And there's a reason why people just sock it under their mattress. It's not going to go up and down in value. Equity, on the other hand, you know, you're in the market and especially with smaller companies that could go up and down in value violently and there's nothing stopping it from going to zero. So if a huge portion of your net worth is tied up in company stock, or if more importantly, if a huge portion of your compensation is tied up in company stock, you have a huge amount of risk. And similarly, if the company is giving equity to everyone under the sun, that's diluting your ownership. And you know that shows that 
there's almost a frivolity to the way they see ownership in the company. And that would really scare the hell out of me. Sure, sure. I, and, you know, I have seen that from time to time where a company, just for whatever reason, you know, as part of their offer, they might say that we're going to give 10 points of equity. And it's like, you brought up a good way to put it is frivolous. It just seems like, well, how much you really value that if you're giving away that much right out of the gate? But all good stuff. That's all super helpful. Is there any way to really know if you've been given the correct amount of equity compared to your value or, you know, what advice would you give there? Very few companies will be transparent about their equity grant formula. So it's more or less a shot in the dark about how much you're getting. And, you know, as far as what's appropriate, that's, it's almost kind of an internal question. You know, if you compare the value of your shares versus what maybe your value is in the market, that's a much clearer indication. It can be a negotiating point and it often is for developers to go in and say, if you are truly valuing your share at $10 and you're granting me 100,000 shares, this compared to what I'm making just doesn't cut it. So I think this gets back to having a very open dialogue with the hiring managers and with you know the finance department to give the developer a very good understanding of what the value actually is. And that's what's going to let he or she know if it's the correct amount. Going deep into the financials and understanding what the outstanding shares are is another point that's going to make this very clear. I should also you know, kind of clarify that we're talking kind of in the context of closely held tech companies. When you shift gears into the realm of the Fortune 100s, into Amazon, Facebook, Google, what have you, it's a completely different conversation. And it's actually a much easier conversation because you can look up you know, Alphabet in Google right now and know exactly what the share price is. That's not the case in more closely held companies. On the other hand, with more closely held companies, in all likelihood, you'll be sitting in a room with all of the shareholders. So that puts you in a position to be able to dive really deep into what the ownership is like. And you could actually even get a ledger of all the owners and see who owns how much. They don't have to give this to you, but they can. And this is another way to get a really good understanding of, you know, well, this developer who I am guessing is, you know, kind of my same level has this many shares. This is the amount of shares I'm getting. So it makes sense that this is a a pretty equitable offer. Absolutely. All right. This is great stuff. A couple last questions for me. One, what type of framework would you use to evaluate the risk reward benefit of equity in a startup? So Brittany and I actually talked about this the last time I was on. and you have to get aggressive. You really have to look at the company as if you're planning to acquire it from the standpoint of private equity. You know, you're investing not just your time and your energy, but a portion of your compensation is going into this. And it's safe to assume that if you weren't receiving equity in a startup, you would be receiving that as cash. And there's an opportunity cost there that, you know, your money may be more productive elsewhere. It may be more productive just being in an index fund, you know, buying some ETF from a company and and getting six or 8% per year versus the illiquidity and the risk that comes along with it with a startup. So I would dive deep, you know, look at the financials, really get to know the leadership and understand the type of people they are in a startup environment. It's not like they're going to be so inaccessible that you can't sit down and talk to them and, and really understand what their values are and what mindset they have in their particular role within the company. They would also furnish you with their business model and you know their business plan so that you understand how they got to where they are, how they're going to leverage the resources they have, and really where they want to go. 
in the same conversation, this would tell you about their market position. What is their stance against the competition and what sets them apart? What is going to make sure that this startup and that is going to continue and the equity that you're receiving is going to be worth anything? Because at this point, it's not even just scribbles on paper. It's literally just a couple of ones and zeros in, you know, in the atmosphere. So knowing what you're getting into and what the future plans are of the company, including their exit strategy, are going to be just critically important to determining if it's worth the risk. And then most importantly, you have to ask yourself if you could afford to lose your shirt. Let's say you have 10 million shares of a particular startup and it goes to zero. Are you going to be okay? Do you have enough saved elsewhere or are you banking on this, on this windfall to really just be your early retirement or pay for your kid's college or, you know, just keep your head above water. So, you know, whenever you're getting involved in a startup and and you have equity, no matter how much it is, you have to consider the level of diversification and what do your other assets and other resources look like just if you showed up tomorrow and the doors were locked. Excellent advice. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is one of the easiest decisions you can make. As an engineering lead on a tech stack that supports UI, API, mobile application, and Chrome extension, it is awesome to have all of my error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and check-in monitoring in one place. No matter how great your team is, your code is going to have errors. Honey Badger empowers your whole team to own the features they ship. Honey Badger sends you alerts real-time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Head over to honeybadger.io and discover how Honey Badger is used by tens of thousands of pragmatic developers and companies of all sizes who want to focus on shipping great, error-free products. All right. Last question for me, and I do see quite a bit of this, typically offers that we see developers receive are from either smaller, scrappier startups, you know, private companies or public companies that have publicly traded stock. One is sort of cash money that you can cash in on. The other is not cash money yet. So for the smaller startups that are privately held, what opportunities exist out there for developers to turn equity into liquidity in a secondary market? That's such an interesting question. So you're almost going from a sheltered lifestyle, you know, like growing up on a farm in the middle of nowhere to living in New York City. So you had been in this position where you can't do anything with this money. Unless you make a handshake deal over lunch with somebody who's in the company, you probably can't get any value for it. Once a liquidity event happens, the sky's the limit. So, you know, primarily for developers who liquidate their equity, they're effectively getting a cash bonus at preferential tax rates. So they're going to pay long-term capital gains on the stock if they liquidate it. So let's say what they receive whenever the sale happens is a million dollars. If they received a million dollar cash bonus, they would immediately bump up into the highest tax bracket, which is 39% and just get creamed. Whereas if they sell their shares and get that million dollar profit, at most they'll pay 20%. So you know, they're saving $170,000 in tax consequences right off the top. And then, like I said, the sky's the limit. So if the acquiring company doesn't exchange your shares for shares of their own company, so, you know, let's say you're acquired by Google, for example, if 
the equity you own in your company doesn't become shares of Alphabet and you just get cash, you have all the options in the world. So you could reinvest that money in the market, which depending upon the size, the circumstances of the developer, that could be a really great opportunity because you know I believe firmly that if you protect your downside, if you're well diversified throughout the entire market, then the upside takes care of itself. And you know, you're positioned to take another risk, to get involved in another startup where you could have another liquidity event. And you know, you could be in a position to have that three and four digit return that you're just not going to get in, you know, an index fund portfolio. That's just one example. It depends so much on the type of equity that the developer has and really just the market to purchase the shares. So the opportunities are so subjective, just like everything we've talked about today. But I just see so much opportunity if the developer positions himself properly and you know doesn't over-concentrate himself in one area. So even if, let's say, Google does acquire your company and so 98% of your net worth is now tied up in Alphabet, that's pretty unnerving. And this is why you know, I talked about you know, kind of getting at least a portion into a diversified portfolio because that diversifies out a lot of the risk. You think back to companies like Westinghouse or GE, they were the Facebook, Google, Amazon of the 20th century. And they're still good companies. They still exist, but they're not what they used to be. And those were some of the first examples of employees who became billionaires overnight. They were like the janitor at Google. And for those who liquidated their shares, not immediately, but you know, over time to either sustain their quality of life or diversify, they turned out really well. The investors who just held on to their GE or their Westinghouse, even up through today, they lost major portions of their net worth because those companies were at the time were innovators. And over time, competition moved into the market and it diluted their value. And there is nothing to say that competition is not going to move into the market and dilute the market capitalization of Facebook or Amazon and kind of reposition them from innovators to you know, just more kind of blue chip companies. So the opportunities are limitless, but the developer has to be very cognizant of his circumstances and what he wants to do with his money. So Aaron, I'd like to wrap up with two last questions for you. Is a new round of fundraising a good or a bad thing for your equity? So it really depends on the impact the fundraising has on the company itself. Whenever a round of fundraising is issued, more than likely new shares are going to be issued as well. So your percentage of the ownership is going to be diluted, but it's a safe assumption as well that cash infusions are meant to make the company more valuable. So, you know, if all goes according to plan, then your price per share and the total value of the equity you have in the company is likely to go up. So generally, I would say it's a good thing. So lastly, let's get into the happy scenario. Your company is sold and you had vested equity. Now, what do you do? Call a CPA. This is an incredibly complicated and tax sensitive event. So you want to make sure that you're positioned to take the blow. You know, there are a lot of different strategies that you can employ that are time sensitive, but can limit the cash outflow that you actually need to make. That said, another option is just to cash out. So like we had talked about before, it's perfectly reasonable for you to hold on to the stock of the company that acquired your company, if that is actually what happened. But you don't have to. And there's a lot of behavioral finance research that encourages people to figure out how much is enough. So if after this sale, 
based on your equity, you have received more than enough money than you'll ever need, then there's really no reason for you to be so concentrated and take on the risk. The upside is not worth the reward. So to cash out and to diversify yourself and just kind of sail into the sunset, it's a great opportunity. But you know the sky is the limit, but make sure that you have a great team of professionals on your side to advise you because it can get pretty, pretty hairy. Well, fantastic. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on today and for educating Brian and myself. I know you answered so many questions that I didn't even know that I had. If listeners are interested in getting in touch, how can they do that? You could either find me on LinkedIn or email me through my website, mywealthmgmt.com. And I'd be happy to have a conversation with anybody who has questions. Fantastic. We will make sure to link all of that up in the show notes. Again, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on today. Developers, I hope you listened hard and learned a lot from Aaron today because this stuff is really important. Your compensation is important and you should take equity seriously. If you have other topics that you would like to hear from Aaron, definitely reach out to us as well. Thank you so much, Aaron. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.